Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the Executive Director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is your host, Jody Westby, and I'm so pleased to have David Nevetta with us today. David's a front runner in the privacy and security area, and he stood there with many of us as the fields were just taking hold and finally become real practice areas. David is vice chair of Cooley LLP's cyber data privacy practice and is a prominent leader in privacy, information security, and technology law. He has extensive experience counseling clients on novel and cutting-edge data protection issues, including data breach response, cybersecurity risk management, consumer and employee privacy, incident response planning, and cyber governance. David's clients range from startups to large Fortune 500 multinationals across a range of industries. David, welcome. I would like to focus today on privacy and cyber governance and the difference between the two. Let's start with cyber governance. Cyber governance generally focuses on information security programs and the security of networks, data, and applications. You did a terrific analysis of the comments submitted to the SEC on their proposed cybersecurity rule. I think there are about 100 or more comments. Let's start off by asking you to generally describe the proposed rule and what areas got the most attention in the comments that were submitted to the SEC. Thanks, Jody. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, It's a pleasure to to speak with you on on these topics. Um, We're in a very interesting time in our space uh, although for the last uh, 15 or 20 years or so, it seems the interesting times come come very quickly and frequently in our in our area. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to the SEC and their activity, I think it's worth stepping back for one second and sort of getting a sense of what the environment looks like and and perhaps why the SEC is taking some of the steps they're taking these days. The SEC has been talking about cybersecurity disclosures and risks for for some time more in the, in the sense of guidance it's been providing around what those disclosures should be and when when certain events and um, risks should be disclosed by public companies. In 2022, this year in March, they proposed some additional more direct rules and more robust reporting requirements um, as part of their rulemaking. From my perspective, I think a lot of this probably arose out of the fact that ransomware had taken a very significant hold globally as a major risk to um, organizations and governments. And then we had the Colonial Pipeline um, matter where uh, Pipeline itself was hit by ransomware and brought down and and that affected um, gasoline and and the ability for fuel to get to the Southeast United States. And so I think what has been happening generally is that the SEC and the government all the way up to the top have realized that there is actually a significant um, uh, infrastructure risk associated with ransomware and these types of attacks. And that flows into what public companies are doing about cybersecurity and how they're managing that risk, uh, which then flows into shareholders and their ability to understand and make decisions about companies. So 
That's sort of the precursor for the SEC's proposed rule. What the rule does and some of the highlights of the rules, um, it actually uh, is more explicit about, for example, reporting uh, potential data breaches or vulnerabilities that could have a material impact on the organization. Um, there is a um, form uh, in the SEC document world called the 8K. It's called a current report. And what the uh, proposed rules would do was make uh, cybersecurity issues and breaches a specific item uh, that may require a, a report uh, should a data breach or a vulnerability reach a certain level of materiality. And in fact, um, there's a four business day deadline for actually notifying publicly on data breaches and vulnerabilities and other security issues that could have a material impact on the organization. So that's a big part of the new rule. Another part of it is more explicit and direct um, disclosures around risk factors in, in 10 Qs and 10 Ks, quarterly statements and annual statements. Um, again, the SEC has been working on this for some time in the form of guidance, but now this would make some of that guidance more of an official rule. And generally speaking, what's be, being required there are non-generic disclosures. So the SEC wants companies to actually disclose specific security risks that, oppose, that apply to it, specific types of breaches that they may have experienced, specific vulnerabilities that could cause material issues. Um, we're not talking anymore about uh, kind of generic boilerplate disclosures. We're, this requires companies to actually are arguably do a little bit of due diligence to make sure they don't have these issues uh, present and perhaps in some cases to report specific security risks, risks and issues that, that, that may have to be uh, put into these statements. And then the third major area uh, is um, more robust reporting about the actual security programs of or public companies. So information about risk assessments that the companies may have uh, undertaken, information about the security controls intended to address certain risks, more about the security program. And, and, and these types of disclosures, these uh, would be on the annual basis for, for this type of disclosure, are much more robust and really weren't required in this, arguably in, in the past. So now companies are going to be revealing to shareholders and the public some of the details of what they've done to um, prevent major security issues within their organization. So that is in a nutshell where, where things are. And I know from experience that a lot of um, senior management and boards are sitting down carefully and looking at these new requirements and trying to understand how they can um, implement and address them on a going forward basis. Yeah, that's right. Have you heard any guesses of when the final rule may come come out? I think the SEC set itself set a deadline for itself for April of uh, 2023. So, a lot of us were thinking because of the ransomware attacks and such that were very imminent that the rule um, making would be quicker. Um, but um, even even uh, you know a year or so, or even less than a year, ultimately uh, could happen. That's still pretty quick for the SEC. So I expect we'll see something in the spring of 2023 in terms of finalization. Or maybe we'll see it a little before that and it just won't be effective until then. That would be good to give people some time to... Good point. I, I think with any of these privacy or data security rules, um, it's not um, not very quick to be able to turn and, and uh, address all the requirements necessarily. So... Even yeah. if they put these rules out or, uh, in the spring, perhaps they'll build in some 
some of somewhat of a grace period, perhaps to, to allow people to, to react and, and adjust. Yeah, they might. Let's hone in on the requirement that boards disclose whether they have cybersecurity expertise on the board and also then the disclosure requirements of risk management strategy and governance as part of a company's 10K. Can you tell us about comments submitted in these areas and your take on them? Yeah, sure. Um, there were a lot of, of comments on this requirement in terms of you know, the requirement being reporting whether or not you have cybersecurity expertise on the board uh, or in a, in a different um, capacity, maybe in an audit committee or somewhere else. Uh, again, the, the requirement is not that you actually have it, but that you report whether or not you have it. Um, <laughs> a lot of a lot of companies said that while um, this would basically create a de facto requirement to have that that type of expertise on the board in some respect, and you know, while I, I applaud having some aspect or um, version of of expertise that. Uh, could help with cybersecurity. And, and uh, I, I do think that it's not a one-size-fits-all type of uh, environment we're in. Some companies may need it more than others. Others may not need such experience. And um, to require everyone across the board, arbitrarily perhaps, to have cybersecurity expertise on the board probably goes too far. And that's what the comments were suggesting. And so by requiring someone to report, the, there was a complaint that that created a de facto requirement for register, registrants to find board members with that experience. But still, well, it's for a public company. And if you're a public company, you're probably big enough to have somebody with cyber expertise on the board, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think bigger companies certainly have have more room for that and, and probably the ability to find that type of expertise. Um, so again, I... If a company has certain risks, uh, in my opinion, I think this type of expertise would be helpful, irrespective of any rules or anything else. I, I think we're in an environment now where just asking general questions about cybersecurity um, is is maybe not as useful uh, as having someone who has been in the trenches, who understands how cybersecurity impacts uh, the actual organization, and not just security professional, perhaps, but someone who can really um, understand what happens when a breach occurs and what the true impacts to the company are. Um, all of that would be helpful. So while I don't necessarily agree that there should be a strict blanket requirement, I do think it can be very useful for the right clients. Mm -hmm. The other aspect and comment that we saw was it's not clear exactly what that means uh, and, and how much expertise you need to have and what's the appropriate level of expertise. So um, again, a lot of these terms and, and concepts will be fleshed out over time, but that was one of the other um, complaints, we'll say, or comments that came out. Right. In terms of reporting on risk management, uh, cyber strategy, and government governance, uh, there, again, uh, wasn't necessarily a requirement in the guidance or, or suggested by the SEC in the past to provide this type of, of detail. But really what it, what it does is requires certain levels of disclosure around the security program of the organization. You know, what risks of assessment they've done, what risks they've identified, how they've um, put in controls to manage those risks, um, who's responsible for security. The complaints here and the comments here are um, uh, basically around worries that by disclosing details of a cybersecurity program, you may give malicious actors um, the ability to understand a company's security defenses and 
uh, perhaps overcome those defenses or exploit vulnerabilities. There was a call for maybe less detailed or prescriptive requirements uh, in this context to avoid um, any kind of security risks, um, as well as um, making sure that any kind of disclosures really tracked to materiality and, um, again, didn't require sort of a blanket require requirement to uh, report uh, details of a security program where there really wasn't a significant risk. And so that's where these, these comments were coming from. I think there's a definite um, debate as to whether the amount of detail required here would actually create additional security risks for organizations and, and whether it could be calibrated to some degree to avoid that. And so we'll see how the SEC comes back with their rules and see if they modify them in any way to, to address this issue. Um, the other thing is just a practical um, issue is, you know, these disclosures are intended to be for shareholders. And most shareholders, of course, are not security professionals themselves. So perhaps um, by disclosing some details around security, the average shareholder really wouldn't get much value out of such a disclosure. So that's another um, issue that came up during that that uh, content or uh, the comment period. Yeah. Well, people, I've heard for 20 years people say that. And frankly, you can, an organization can say whether they're complying with best practices and standards, whether their security program is aligned to one or more best practices and standards, or whether they do regular assessments and, and vulnerability scanning and penetration testing and training for their people. They can say those things and it, that doesn't reveal the keys to the kingdom. I think not necessarily, hard. but but does create potential legal risks. And I think one of the issues was for complex organizations to make a blanket statement about, let's say, best practices may yeah. be difficult. And I think there's a concern. There has been FTC-related activity where they've gone and looked at public statements in, in financial statements and, and perhaps have questioned whether those are accurate or not. And yeah. to make, a, again, a blanket statement across a sophisticated, complex organization about security um, I think there is some risk associated with having to make that type of statement. Yeah, for that kind of interpretation, that's a good point. But I basically think the SEC is taking an appropriate step because we've waited now for at least 15 years for companies to start doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they just aren't doing it. So I can see why the rules are and, and regulations are starting to to come. Let's shift to privacy governance, because that's a term not used very often, and it needs more visibility. I know you, you know, play in the privacy governance space and have clear thoughts about that. So please tell us what privacy governance means to you, and please describe some of the activities that fall within that. Thanks. Great question. And uh, yeah, definitely an area of a lot of activity uh, recently, especially, again, stepping back, uh, what we're experiencing, a lot of our clients are experiencing are, of course, in the privacy world, uh, a lot more uh, regulation coming through, a lot more enforcement coming through. In the U.S., we have you know five uh, new state laws coming online around privacy in 2023. We have a potential bipartisan uh, federal bill uh, that could be passed. Um, we have the FTC engaging in rulemaking. Uh, not to mention, of course, the global environment, GDPR, and many other countries with um, comprehensive, robust privacy laws. And the reality for organizations who are um, um, collecting and, and utilizing personal information as part of their business model, as part of their technology, or otherwise, is that the complexity um, that exists and the risk that exists have gone up significantly. And so, 
companies um, in terms of uh, what they're doing with personal information are starting to um, realize that they have to have a more formalized approach to analyzing privacy risks, to um, diligencing um, various processing activities that they may engage in to make sure they're not running afoul of the laws, to make sure that their reputation can remain intact based on whatever privacy they're engaged in. And um, you know, these issues ultimately around privacy hit a lot of different stakeholders within companies. It's not just the legal department who deals with these issues. It's often the marketing department, say, who wants to take certain personal information and use it a certain way for marketing purposes, or the product development team who's developing a new product or service uh, that involves processing of personal information. And um, they may trip up privacy concerns and issues in terms of how they actually design their products and services. So companies are realizing that, you know, oftentimes the marketing team, product team, uh, and security engineers, privacy um, and technical engineers within the organization don't always talk to each other and aren't always connected to each other, but that they need to be. And and that's something that the product team or marketing team does around privacy and and data processing could actually have a a very bad impact for the company legally, um, regulatorily, or reputationally. So a privacy governance, similar to data security governance, is about connecting the dots. It's, it's about ensuring that before, for example, that marketing team goes out and puts a new cookie on a website to collect data in a certain way and use it for targeted marketing, for example, that they're coordinating with the legal department or the chief privacy officer. Um, they're checking whether or not a data privacy impact assessment is needed in, under GDPR, for example. Um, so basically, um, awareness at the various points where privacy issues do rise up within organizations, and then an escalation path and analysis path for those types of activities to ensure that they're complying with law and managing risk. And at the same time, of course, achieving whatever business goals are, are trying to be achieved by those stakeholders. So that's privacy governance in a nutshell. It's It's risk management, but it's also about enabling, enabling the business to do what they need to do or want to do uh, within the parameters of the law. And, and having a framework for how you use the data. You're exactly right. It's often the advertising or the marketing department that wants to go do something and they just use data and don't even think about whether there's a compliance requirement. So if the company doesn't have a framework where everyone knows if they're going to use data in some form, it's got to go through an approval process, then that creates a really high risk. I agree. I mean, I've worked with a lot of companies who don't have these programs in place. And oftentimes I'm getting the call after everything's already happened, right? After the marketing team has gone out without any guidance or the product team has gone out without any guidance, created the product, engaged in the marketing effort, and we're having to clean it all up after the fact because we, we look at the privacy notice and say, well, this may not comport with the privacy notice. You may, you may be violating your own notice or maybe violating a, a statute. You didn't get the appropriate consent for whatever activity you're engaged in. And then that cleanup is much more painful than doing it from the beginning and addressing these issues early on. That's the enablement part of it, too. And when we come in as lawyers and, and consultants on these issues, right, we, we have to make sure we're pitching it in a way that is is constructive, right? And Because otherwise, you're going to get these departments avoiding, trying to avoid uh, governance altogether. Yeah. They, they don't want to be told no 
um, necessarily, but they, they do need to be told maybe, you know, not this way, but that way, um, or you can't quite do fully what you want to do, but let's try this other alternative that maybe achieves the same goal um, as, as your initial um, uh, business plan wanted it to, to put in place. So that's kind of the art of what we do is sort of balancing those business objectives against uh, compliance requirements and, and against really uh, again, how things are perceived by the public and customers um, when it comes to privacy. That's right. I mean, you, you do want to create an environment where people want to come and do the right check, not to beg for forgiveness afterward and <laughs> permission first. Um, so let's talk about privacy by design for a minute. That concept introduced was introduced by Canadian Privacy Commissioner Anne Kabukian back in the 90s. It's actually a parallel to what we call SDLC, System Development Lifecycle, on the cybersecurity side, where you have cybersecurity built in from the time the system's proposed to develop, tested, implemented, you know, maintained, and then finally retired. And so she, she called privacy by design. Basically, you also think about that with data going through the lifecycle. So do you believe that privacy by design, though, has really taken hold or is it a buzzword and something that privacy professionals think about that hasn't really gotten implemented in the business processes? I'm going to say a little bit of both. I know a lawyer's answer, um, but I, I think that's the reality as well. I mean, so first of all, privacy by design is part of governance, right? It, it's it, And it's, it's the part of governance focused on product and service um, development and design, as you point out. And what we're seeing is, um, a lot of companies, I would say in the last two or three years, especially, um, and a lot of our clients are actually emerging market type companies, growth type companies who are starting um, building products that are technology and, and data oriented. I would say in the last two or three years, the questions that we've been receiving around privacy have come much closer to the beginning of the product development stage than they had been in the past. I think that companies are realizing that if they go out with a product or a service that hasn't addressed certain issues, especially companies that are B2B type companies where their business customers are going to be demanding certain privacy controls and, and considerations be put in place before using a product or service, um, we're seeing those companies actually um, sit down with lawyers early on, ask the right questions about how data flow should work, ask the right questions about what consents may be necessary, ask about data minimization and data collection minimization from a privacy perspective and trying to more deliberately build that into the product or service. There are a lot of companies who are, are that trend that I think I see is happening much more so. At the same time, as we were talking about a second ago, a lot of organizations when it comes to um, getting out to the market, um, getting their product or service adapted, um, put privacy to the side and are more focused sometimes on growth, right? Um, they want to make the software work properly. Uh, they want to get it to market. And when that happens, that's when we get the calls where we have to go in and kind of retrofit the privacy and data security into the process. And sometimes companies can find themselves in real trouble when that happens. If they've right. gone too far, um, it's hard to reverse sometimes that development process and build these um, privacy and security um, controls and, and protections back into the product. And sometimes I, you know, recently, in fact, I've seen um, customers, some business customers, walk away from certain products or services or certain data 
that they say um, you know hasn't been properly um, uh, vetted or um, addressed addressed around privacy issues. And so, when that happens, that can be very detrimental for companies, not just from a regulatory point of view, but from the the ability to do their own business. Right. It's part of the culture, and if you have a government privacy governance framework, you're creating a culture within management, the board, and pushing down into the business units that this has to be thought about. I have a a smaller client now that's trying to replace three legacy systems. Mm -hmm. They've engaged in two contracts for development of new systems. And not a single person looked at security, cybersecurity of the data with those two new apps. Contracts are signed. Mm -hmm. They're going to develop the apps. They're only thinking of operational and functional activities. And so now they just happen to be doing a cybersecurity assessment at this time. And I said, well, what are you doing with the security requirements with these two new systems? Well, we don't know. And so you're right. Now, this may be soon enough. they They can catch it in the beginning in the development phase. But some of this is part of the code. And you have to think about it at that time. Privacy governance has to include data classification. and that ensures that proper security controls are in place for sensitive or personally identifiable information. To me, this is where privacy governance and cyber governance shake hands. Mm-hmm. Um, is data classification something you see boards and C-suites focusing on, or is it still an operational task? Probably not quite up to the board level. I, I do see C-suites focusing on it more frequently. Um, some of it has been driven by um, the data rights that are present in you know, the CCPA and GDPR, a realization during the process of compliance that in order to comply, you need to know, A, what data you have, B, where it is, and, and C, how risky it is, right? All three things have to be known in order to actually comply with these laws. So I think the regulatory scheme has actually started to focus companies in more on data classification. At the same time, it's a big job, right? And, and it's not a very consistent kind of um, approach in terms of companies actually getting all the way through such a project. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of fits and starts, you know, companies, um, you know, trying to focus on compliance. Uh, of course, they, all the people doing that work also have day jobs um, where they have to actually build things and, you know, sell things and such. And so, a lot of times these classification and, and data mapping type projects get bogged down uh, because of the complexity associated with them. But when it comes to governance, if you're not classifying your data uh, and the people who are your stakeholders aren't aware that a certain type of data may pose more risks, then that means perhaps that the data flows and, uh, and the flow in the privacy governance plan, it doesn't result in the right people analyzing that risk. So. Right. As a baseline, you need to be able to do that. Yeah, or to have the right controls on that data. That's right. And it's not only, I I would also say it's data classification, but also activities, right? Certain types of processing activities need to be flagged for higher risk. So, you know, everyone is debating now um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the potential for discrimination that could happen with respect to that type of um, processing and so not only are you concerned about the type of data, but what are you doing with the data? What decisions are being made? Um, uh, so the, those are the two areas where companies are sort of trying to take an inventory, essentially, of the data and the processing activities and saying to themselves, 
if we're engaged in this activity or marketing department or product development team, you're engaged in it, you need to talk to the right people to vet this. And then that's um, the beginning, the first step really to making this work. Yeah. I am glad to hear you bring up mapping of data flows because that's also talked about. But I find companies struggle more and more with it because so much processing is now done by vendors, SaaS operators, the software as a service operators, or in the cloud. So how critical is data mapping to privacy governance? I mean, again, it's it's a foundational element like classification. Um, it, it's about mapping your flows, not only to the where your data is being processed and to whom you're transferring it, but when we do mapping, we're mapping to the the, uh, the compliance requirements. We're mapping to the requirements of the CCPA or GDPR to understand, um, you know, for example, have we established the appropriate legal basis for a particular processing activity? So companies um, often, again, start down the road of this mapping, um, realize that it's not necessarily easy and um, often struggle to actually get it done. We have been working with companies now to, you know, prioritize certain types of mapping activities over others, perhaps. Certainly anything customer-facing, dealing with customer and consumer information, where there are more rigorous requirements out there, or where the processing is more crucial to the business plan of of the organization. In order to avoid boiling the ocean, sometimes we start off with with focusing on that processing and that uh, those activities, uh, and then later down the line, when it comes to compliance, focusing on um, things that are important, maybe maybe less crucial to the mission of the company or less in the crosshairs of regulators. Um, so I think to actually achieve this, you have to be realistic about how long it's going to take, how much focus it's going to take, and um, do it over time. And yeah. you know, ultimately, some companies. We'll get there. Others may not. Uh, but, you know, when you're advising these companies, you basically have to tell them, and if you don't understand your data flows, you can't really truly address compliance and you're taking risk. And um, uh, over time, hopefully you can reduce and minimize that risk. But a lot of companies are just holding that risk for a period of time until they're able to actually do that focus. Um, that's true. And I do think the vendor issue complicates things because I for right now have a client where the vendors, the SaaS vendors are reluctant to give us their data tables for their applications. And how can you build, you know, a data inventory uh, if you don't have the tables and the and the know the fields in them? And so I think it's a it's a big problem. Um, I'm sure you have clients who come to you that do not have formal privacy programs. Uh, what do you say to companies, your clients? Uh, or what do you think are the three most important things a company should do to establish privacy governance and get a privacy program underway? I think one of the most important things is getting buy-in, right? And obviously, as lawyers and, and privacy consultants, we have a particular view of you know what needs to happen to comply, how it, how it needs to work. If that is the focus and the messaging that goes out, it's too narrow, right? So in order to get these programs bought into, you need to be able to articulate to the business people who who this affects the most, why this is important to enable them to do the business that they want to do, right? Um, And so you really have to frame it from the beginning, big picture wise. 
as um, as that that being the goal. We want to help you and enable you. These issues are threshold issues um, that you know. In order to get into the market, in order to satisfy our business customers, we, these things need to be addressed. Because if we don't address them, it will actually affect our ability to go to market and and actually generate revenue with our product or service. So that's the first kind of step. The second is you know, developing a process and, and being able to articulate that the process is not going to be so overly burdensome that it's going to, again, have that bad negative impact on, on the business flow and, and the ability to go to market. So you have to design these programs in a practical way. Um, you have to design them in a risk-based way. So um, as you know, Jody, I would argue that there's probably not a company on earth that is 100% compliant with every data security and privacy law, right? Yeah. And if that is your goal for your privacy um, governance program, um, that's never going to work. So a risk-based approach needs to be articulated and, and people need to have a clear understanding of those um, lines where the risks are greater versus where there are uh, lesser risks. And then third is, is education. Um, again, we take for granted as, as professionals in this area that concepts that we deal with every day, you know, what is a sale? What is, uh, you know, uh, least restrictive access? The buzzwords that we deal with and understand um, are not really readily understood by a lot of people um, out there in the, in, the, in the normal world, we'll say. Even, the, even what the concept of personal information is unclear to people. I mean, a lot of people I still deal with think that an IP address uh, or a device ID, because someone's name has been stripped from the data, is not personal information when, of course, you and I know that that is regulated personal information. So making it accessible to um, the normal kind of day-to-day business people who have to deal with these issues, that's the other big challenge when it comes to developing these privacy governance programs. Yeah, I agree completely. We are about out of time, but before closing, because you always have your ear to the ground and you're visionary in the space, I wanted to ask you where you see regulators heading with respect to privacy governance. Are we about to see a tidal wave of new privacy regulations? Well, I think we are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have the state laws coming online here. Uh, we, we're going to have California now with a much, ro- much more robust enforcement uh, capability. And so um, not only are we going to get new laws, but we're going to get new, um, new enforcement. The states that are coming online, Colorado, Utah, Virginia, um, next year um, are going to have um, their own set of regulations. So while there is some overlap and con- kind of conformity between the, the various statutes that have been passed, the regulations could cause these laws to go in different directions and create more complexity. I think the, 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 the real issue is going to be not only new privacy laws, but how do you harmonize them when it comes to actual compliance? Um, I mean, even now, the, the privacy laws have different definitions of sensitive personal information, for example. How, how do you, are you going to have to have, you know, a privacy policy for every state in the U.S. and, you know, every country in the world that you deal with? Mm-hmm. How does this all work in reality? I think that is a big question that is still um, not very clear in terms of how that's going to be answered. So, um, yeah, I think I, the way I view it is, you know, when you and I started in this space, Privacy was like a little pebble. You threw it in the water and ripples came and happened from that one pebble. Now in the privacy world, I, you know, I would argue we're taking a handful of pebbles and throwing it into that water and now dealing with all those ripples that are bumping into other ripples and, and creating 
this environment that is really difficult to deal with from a from a business perspective. And so, you know, that's where we are. Uh, you know, it's going to require probably a whole new generation of privacy and security lawyers to be able to deal with these issues as we go forward here. You know, it's an exciting time as always in our space. Um, and will probably become more exciting as we, as we go forward here with these new laws and, and new regulatory activity. It will. And we'll see more of a combination of privacy and security where there will be cyber governance that will encompass both privacy governance and cybersecurity governance or information security governance. Because, you know, privacy and cybersecurity and cybercrime, as I said for a long time, are three legs of a stool. And when you have a privacy breach or a security breach, you have a privacy problem. And that's usually a cybercrime. And companies just still don't have those three legs solidly planted on the ground to deal with them. But you have been so great in articulating the privacy governance issue and some of the problems there. We thank you, David, for your time. And we look forward to having you back again. Jody, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure um, to see you soon. And uh, yeah, thank you for the time. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.